Welcome to the Financially Independent Teachers Podcast, where educators come together to discuss their journey on the road to financial independence. Now, please join our co-host, Dave and Brandon, as they prepare to help other educators get fit with their finances. Welcome and thanks for joining us on episode number 91 of the Financially Independent Teachers Podcast. If you think your story can help other educators and you'd be willing to come on the show, please shoot me an email at getfiteducator at gmail.com. And today is the day, Coach. Uh, November 20th, our investing workshop basics is going to be tonight at 7 p.m. Eastern time via Zoom. Brandon or I, as I've said before, are not certified financial planners. However, we are teachers and we teach personal finance and we're just gonna be going over the basics of what is a Roth IRA, what is a 401k, what is an index fund? We're not gonna tell you what to sign up for, uh, what to invest in, that's not our job, but we're here to teach with the heart of a teacher. So check out the Financially Independent Teachers social media pages for the link and we hope to see you tonight. Coach, always a pleasure to have you on the show. On this episode, we're going to address, I don't know if this is the right terminology, but maybe a fit weak spot that we've had so far in the first 90-ish episodes. Yeah, we've, we haven't done really anything to touch on insurance, which is a major part of a person's financial plan. We haven't really done anything to talk about how someone might transition from being an investor to a retiree. You know, what, what do you do? Okay. So you're 25 years old. You're, you're, you're stacking it up in your Roth IRA. You're doing it all right. You're doing the, the fit position budget, man. You're, you're, you're really nailing it. And, but now you're, you know, you're 55, 60 years old, you're getting ready to retire. And now what does that transition from working to retiring look like? But our, our guest tonight, uh, Chip, Chip Highmiller, he, you know, registered investment advisor, uh, owns his own business, um, you know, we're, we're talking about someone here who can talk about a whole range of things when it comes to finances. So I'm looking forward to hearing all that he has to say. We're not going to pigeonhole him into one or two categories, but I think those are things that he'll be able to touch on tonight and give some clarification and then all kinds of other things that our listeners will love to hear. So Yeah, I think one of the hard things is when you're, especially when you're young, I think it's so hard when you're in the midst of the battle of investing of, man, is this really going to work out? If you're a brand new teacher, and you started listening to our podcast and maybe you open up a Roth IRA, let's say January 1st, 2022. What a great time to start investing, right? Wow, the market's down 25, 28%. Man, these guys are idiots. Why the heck did they tell me to open up this Roth IRA? (laughs) And gosh, I'm losing money. Well, today was a good day, right? Uh, Today, we're actually recording here on the 10th of November. Uh, The Dow was up, I think, 12 or 1300 points today. But what a roller coaster. When you're in it, it's so hard to trust the process. And I'm even in that position, coach. I'm 39 years old for another couple of weeks. And obviously, with a lot of these accounts, you can't touch them till 59 and a half. And we're starting to see that compound interest work. But sometimes you're like, man, is that really, is that really going to work out? If I do the 500 a month, is it really going to end up being four, five, six hundred thousand dollars? That's tough to believe. And we spend so much time doing it. You know, we really don't focus on the exit strategy of how do we tap into these accounts? I know when I was a novice learning, I was like, gosh, let's say I had a million dollars. Now, what do I do? Do I take all $1 million out? 
and like put it in a savings account? Do I just let it ride? Right. He's going to provide some of those answers. I know that was a long winded, but this is so important. Well, you know what, you know what JL Collins said his daughter's superpower was. He said, if, I don't know if you remember this, but when he, when he, when we recorded him sometime back, he said, my daughter's superpower is that she doesn't care. Uh, she just, she just sets it and forgets it. So she doesn't, she wouldn't know if the, he said she wouldn't know if the market was up, down, around. She doesn't know. She's just going to keep investing and that that's her superpower. You know, it's really tough when you look at it all the time, isn't it? Like if every day you're checking it out, you don't, you're only on the roller coaster if you want to be on it, you know, get off the roller coaster. Don't even look, you know, it's probably better. Uh, just set it and forget it. And, you know, uh, uh, over time it always works, uh, or at least historically it has. And, um, but anyways, without, without further ado, uh, let's bring, let's bring our guest on the show tonight. Hey, Chip, Chip how, how you are you, tonight? Chip? Uh, how's everything going in Raleigh, North Carolina? Oh, guys, it's great. Thank you for having me on the show. Uh, I'm super excited about it, and I uh, can't wait to, to get, get going. So you come from uh, a family, or at least a person in your family of educators, and you mentioned, as we chatted before the show, even your partner uh, has family members with a background in education. So it seems like you've got a, a soft spot for teachers, and I know that's your main audience tonight. Can you tell us a little bit of, maybe about that connection? Yeah, my mother was a kindergarten teacher for 30 years. She was in the same classroom the entire time, same school, and um, just loved the kids, um, enjoyed what she did. And uh, until the bitter end, I know for people who are teachers, you kind of know when it's time to exit. And so she knew that it was time for her to exit. And, uh, and she retired. And uh, yeah, my business partner, both of her parents um, were, were teachers uh, here in North Carolina, all, all, everyone in North Carolina here. So, you know, it, it's, uh, I have a real, um, you know, enthusiasm for teachers and appreciation really for, for teachers. And, um, and I know how hard uh, you guys work and, um, and, and it sometimes maybe uh, thankless, but uh, I tell you that, that I certainly have a, a soft spot, spot in my heart for teachers for sure. Mm-hmm. Well, we're very interested in what you do for a living. I mean, it, it's, it's uh, you know, to, to us, it's really exciting that you're a practitioner, that you actually work in the financial field. And um, so we want to get into that a little bit. But I, I thought maybe first you might talk about your relationship with money growing up, you know, some of the lessons that you learned and how you became interested in becoming um, or getting into the field of finance. Yeah, I mean, I, I'll say that growing up, my my family was, we were very modest. I think we were probably poor. I just didn't know it. I mean, I grew up with a family who loved me and a supporting mom and dad. And so, I mean, that's all I needed and um, was, was, was very happy there. I had a great uh, childhood. I'll tell you early on, though, I knew that I wanted to be in uh, the, the business of, of giving advice about money. It was something that fascinated me. Um, I, I was a saver by nature. I have saved my entire life. I hated spending money. Um, I remember this would have been back in the early 80s. Um, I was probably, you know, preteen age age range. I remember walking into the my local bank. Uh, there in Franklin County and um, talking to, I scrounged up a couple of hundred dollars and I wanted to invest that money. And um, 
the lady taught me about CDs, and at the time, the interest rate was six and five-eighths. I remember looking at it on the board and seeing it, and um, which was, that, that'll give you an idea of how long ago it was. Even though rates have come up a little bit, but at, uh, you know, at that time, it was over six. And so I remember that distinctly, and, um, and I knew that I, this is the business I wanted to be in. I, I like getting advice. I like the interaction with people. I like... Um, incrementally working towards goals uh, with people and seeing that progress. And I've been doing this an awful long time. And so I know I've been fortunate enough to see, hey, these are decisions that we help clients make, you know, 15 years ago. And now, wow, look at where we are. And it's, um, you know, I love listening to the intro because it, it was so relatable. I mean, it, you, at times you have setbacks and you wonder, gosh, did I do the right thing? Was I, you know, you can question yourself. It's easy to do that. Uh, especially now when there's so much uncertainty in the system and, and uh, political instability and, you know, all those things that are going on. But, you know, honestly, that's the time when you need to buckle down. You know, you get, uh, even though the, I think the markets are still down, you know, 15 or 20 percent almost this, this year to date, you know, that's the time where if you're in the accumulation phase, you got to be licking your chops. You got to love it. You know, the markets have 100% of the time, come back. Uh, now, this time, we haven't come back yet, right? But, you know, uh, on all the other times, it's come back. And it, it now, you just have to make sure that your time horizon is, is appropriate. But, yeah, um, I, I, I love this industry and uh, working with people. And, um, you know, it, it's uh, it's been very rewarding for me and, and, and my family. So you are a fiduciary. Can you explain to the audience what a fiduciary is and why that would be so important as we've got a lot of new teachers that they aren't really sure. Should I sign up with somebody who comes into my school uh, teacher's lounge? Uh, you know, some of those companies that you hear of, or should I do it on my own with Vanguard or do I, do I go to a company like what you guys have? What is a fiduciary and why is that so important? So, you know, fiduciary is important because, you know, the idea that, you know, if you're a fiduciary, you you are legally bound to operate and make decisions. You're making decisions for someone that's in their best interest and not your best interest, not your company's best interest. Okay, so that's the big distinguishing factor uh, between fiduciaries and non-fiduciary advisors. The one thing that I want your listeners to to hear this and understand it is, you deserve to know how much you get. You are charged for the services that you receive. Okay. That's something that you should not feel hesitant at all to ask. So when an advisor says, hey, I think that you need life insurance, you say, that's great. You're probably right. How much are you getting paid on that? Uh, why not? Why this policy instead of other policies? Can you, you know, elaborate on that a bit? And, and that's an important thing. So that's the biggest thing. So fiduciaries you know, you're required to make um, decisions that are based on your client's best interests and not yours. But oftentimes the fees are, are very transparent with that business approach. And, you know, you're, you know there are advisors that um, have hourly arrangements, that have project-based arrangements, there are subscription arrangements, there's assets under management, if that's, you know, uh, that's another one. Uh, also, uh, you know, just uh, regular fixed fees. So, but you deserve to know because a lot of what I found in the industry, and it's kind of a, uh, our industry, unfortunately, is, you know, it's, it's, 
it's mysterious. There's not a lot of transparency at times. And so, you know, I just kind of want to dispel the, the uh, idea that you shouldn't ask uh, your advisor how much they're getting paid because, it, you know, they're getting paid from you. I promise you that. And, um, you know, the, and all advisors aren't created equal. I mean, if you have, if you work with an advisor that, you know, they work for a specific company, well, that company tells them, hey, you're going to be successful if you promote these products. You know, it's not that, oh, this product is the best for the client. And sometimes it is, but, you know, it's not always, the, the interests aren't always aligned there. And that that's the biggest element of, um, you know, fiduciary versus a, you know, um, and it's called a suitability uh, type of advisor. So fiduciary is the best you can do for the client. Uh, other types of advisors, especially those that are more commission-based, um, it may not necessarily be what's best for the client. It's kind of what's suitable for the client. And it's just a, it's a slight distinction. Um, not to say that there are ethical advisors that have all kinds of different fee arrangement, whether it's commission or fee, fee only or whatever. But, you know, again, the client deserves to know kind of what those are and they need to be, you know, firmly disclosed. Yeah, definitely. So what kind of clients would you say, uh, do, do you deal with, do you deal in a specific kind of client? I know you'll take obviously anyone, but what, what, what are the kind of clients that usually, you know, come through your door? I'll say that most of our clients really understand the interrelated aspect of uh, financial planning, tax, and investments. Okay, so um, because we are, our firm is very tax focused. We have a, my business partner is a CPA. We have an enrolled agent on staff who prepare and file tax returns for clients that um, where that makes sense. Um, but we're we're very involved in the tax planning process. So that's kind of our little segment of how we operate. And it, I think it works really well for uh, anyone who's kind of approaching this uh, decumulation phase or distribution phase. So um, oftentimes people will find us, maybe they're in their mid-50s and, and they'll find us and then we kind of help set the tone for um uh, their retire like the early years of their retirement, we help them make decisions on things like, you know, pension options, right? Do you do the uh, joint survivor? Do you do, do the pop up? Do you do the fifty percent? Do you do the single life? All those those decisions we help make social security decisions. You know, when do you take? Do you um, delay? Uh, what is uh, you know if you're going to delay social security, which accounts do you need to pull out of if you retire before you take social security? And we help kind of um, iron out those types of details for clients. And then on an ongoing basis, you know, we're we're managing their portfolio, we're uh, managing their um, distribution strategy, we're managing their tax strategy, we're uh, you know making sure that their estate plan is is up to date and and consistent for what their wishes are. Uh, we're, we're really looking at their cash flow and it, it's really a comprehensive type of service that we provide for people. And, um, you know, not everyone needs that, uh, but I'll tell you that it is, a, um, you know, uh, there are people who need lots of, lots of advice around, uh, especially taking distributions and understanding, you know, hey, is my, is my portfolio allocated according to my risk profile? 
does that do I have enough um, of the return expectations in my portfolio going to meet what my investment objectives are? Um, should I be more uh, growth oriented? Should I be more conservative? Um, which accounts should I hold uh, certain types of investments in? You know, to me, you want to hold your income producers and your you know qualified plan IRA 401k. And maybe you, you own your more tax efficient index funds in your personal brokerage account. And maybe your Roth account, account you're, you're pretty growth oriented, right? You want to leverage the fact that it's tax exempt over your lifetime. And so those are things that we kind of help people, um, you know, when they're starting before retirement, we kind of think, you know, we want to build up accounts with different tax attributes because we've been doing it long enough to know that tax laws change and we want to have and provide our clients the flexibility when they retire um, to be able to adapt as tax laws change. And so we want to see uh, things, you know, we want to see different buckets. And um, so we're helping people a lot with that. And, uh, and then just ongoing. I mean, right now, honestly, we're doing a lot of coaching. Hey, um, you know, the markets are down, but we ex we've expected that. You expect that over time, you know. In a person's lifetime, at their investment life cycle, there may be three or four recessions. You know, you you have to be kind of prepared. It's kind of comes with the territory. But we're coaching people through that. It's not easy. I mean, think about it. When you when you retire, and there's no source of income, and you see your portfolio decline by you know 12 or 15 percent or whatever, uh, and we've seen it. You know, with the pandemic that happened, and then now. Uh, and this is kind of in short order, you know, you, you, um, it, it is worrisome. And so, you know, you, people tend to think, oh, did I make the, like you're questioning yourself, oh, did I, did I make a mistake? Well, no, it's just, you have setbacks from time to time and you've got enough liquidity. We kind of run through a retirement plan where we're simulating your cash flow in retirement. We're looking at, um, you know, spending guardrails, you know, we're thinking about, um, you know, what, what kind of risk you need to take, what kind of risk you should take and what kind of, um, you know, returns you really need. And so, you know, we're kind of helping unscramble all that. And I think that most people that we work with, they, they get a sense of peace of mind. That's really what we deliver. We deliver the peace of mind of knowing that, okay, we have, there's an advisory firm that is working under a fiduciary umbrella to help me and my family in the most efficient way that we can. And that's through investing, tax management, and, uh, and all the other financial planning uh, areas too. So, so it, it's a fun and very rewarding uh, occupation for sure. Yeah, you get to be a teacher yourself a little bit, except for you get paid a little bit better than uh, us public school teachers it, here it, in North Carolina. It, it really is a lot of teaching, a lot of education uh, with, you know, from products to strategies you know, Roth conversion strategies, right? So, you know, why would anybody want to do that? Well, okay, you're in the, you know, but between you you retiring and taking Social Security and having to take required minimum distributions, there's a period of time where you're in a really low tax bracket. Well, man, let's let's pull money out of a 401k and or an IRA and convert that a portion of that strategically into a Roth, right? So let's maximize the 12% tax bracket. You know, right. You only right. be there one time in your life. And so, you know, that's where we want to find those opportunities for people and um and work hard for that. Yep. Yeah, that so so there, there was a lot there 
to probably unpack. Uh, so I'm, I'm just gonna I'm I'm gonna, I'm gonna move on to another question here, but I'm probably gonna come back to some of that that you just said, and I know Dave will too. But I do want to while while I'm thinking about it, I would like to get you to talk just a little bit about insurance because I know you guys know a lot about that and and you know we're talking about life insurance we're talking about disability insurance we're talking about long-term health in, uh, or uh, health in, long-term care insurance and the types of insurance that people should be considering when they're younger and then how that changes you know as they get older and start looking at retirement yeah so um uh, I mean Insurance is a component that everyone needs to scrutinize uh, from time to time, right? You know, when you're young and you have a young family, to me, life insurance and, and disability as well is, is are super important, you know, and, you know, we, we kind of take a quantitative approach to that. Let's calculate how much life insurance you, you need. I mean, you, there are rules of thumb out there, but, you know, to me, it's simply... Um, you know, thinking about what what will life insurance uh, cover? If, if something were to happen to the breadwinner of your family, how does the family continue? And so we want to look at things like, you know, uh, from the basics of, you know, uh, funerals to replenishing emergency fund to, you know, things like debt. Do you, can you uh, pay off debt? Yeah, I wouldn't suggest that, but you you know, oftentimes when you're doing the calculation, you want to you want to know, okay, let's let's at least have that money um, that we could pay off debt if we if we needed to, um, and also other liabilities like children's education and things like that. You know, you can need coverage for that. But the biggest one is the future cash flow needs um, as it relates to replacement replacement of income. So is it is it accurate again in the generic sense? I've always heard that when it comes to term life insurance, that term is generally going to be a better option for most than whole life. Obviously, it's going to be cheaper. And then the second part of that being, you know, if my wife made $100,000 a year, I should have 10 times what her annual income is in life insurance. So if she makes $100,000 a year, I should have a million dollar policy on her. If I make $50,000 a year, I should have a $500,000 policy policy on me. Again, those are generic terms and every situation is different, but is that decent advice when it comes to the life insurance yeah, stuff? Yeah, that's decent advice. I mean, and I'll, I'll tell you that I'm on board hundred percent term life is the way to go. Um, I've seen clients, they come into my office with a cash value policy, whole life, especially universal. And it's so much more expensive. And I feel like cash flow is very important to young families. Uh, it allows, you know, if you're, you're paying less in life insurance, as long as you have the right coverage, it's important to get enough coverage. But if you're paying, you know, if, if your premiums are, you know, $500 a year for a big policy, uh, and you can use the difference to fund a Roth to contribute to the 401k and get the match, whatever it may be, you know, that's a good use of your, your personal resources. And so I'm 100% on board with that. There are times when uh, permanent life insurance, which whole life and universal are the big ones, can be appropriate. I'm not, I'm, you know, keep in mind that our firm does not sell products of any kind. We advise. So we, um, we help identify, we identify the need, educate clients about, you know, uh, what type of coverage, how much coverage, things to think about. 
and then we provide direction of where to go to get that coverage, and we work with, we outsource that with a firm that we trust. And so that's kind of the way we approach it, but you're, you're spot on there, Dave, with, with how you think about that. You know, as far as whole life insurance goes, I've, I've, I've heard that one of the few times it might be appropriate is uh, when you take a whole life insurance policy out on a newborn. Um, and I guess for fear that something could happen that would make them hard to insure later, uh, it's not a bad idea to do that. I don't, I don't, I, I, you hear that advice all the time, especially from my parents' generation. They, 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 I think everybody took out whole life insurance policies on their, on their, their children. Is, is, is that something, uh, you know, just going along the lines of, you know, the kind of advice that people share, is that a piece of advice that's good or, or is that sort of outdated? Maybe we should just put our money in a 529 plan and forget about the, the whole life insurance policy, you know? Yeah, well, I mean, I guess, I mean, to me, there's not a lot of insurable interest in um, a child, right? I mean, they, they have no income, they have no debt, they, right. uh, but the point you make is, is you know, I, I get that. Maybe they have some kind of condition that would preclude them from getting coverage later in life, but odds are, you know, you're talking about probably a 20000 $25,000 policy that's... Right. You know, for most people, that's not going to be that much. And uh, I mean, I didn't do that for my kids, um, you know, and I just felt like that I, you know, I didn't need I didn't need to do that. But it's all dependent on the person. I mean, some people, you know, you find some people who think that insurance is the, uh, you know, can solve, you know, can create world peace, you know. And uh, <laughs> I'm just, I'm not, that's not me. I, I'm kind of like, let's, oh, man, that was good. let's identify the risk. Uh, with things, and then let's find a solution that we can help mitigate that risk. Right. right. So we talk a lot about this teacher accumulation phase. You know, we talk about uh, we have the fit position that that we promote, and generally, what Brandon and I say, and and again, we're not certified financial planners, but the first place we would say for middle income earners, Brandon loves when I say that. But I just have to Says be clear, that all the Brandon. time, man. Hey, hey, I got to hey. be clear. <laughs> Uh, but the first place we say for most teachers that's appropriate is the Roth IRA. And, and many teachers, you know, that'd be the first bucket, maybe the only bucket if they're lucky they can fill up. But some teachers, you know, maybe they have a higher income spouse. Maybe they can, you know, use the 457. Maybe at work they have, uh, like in North Carolina, we have the North Carolina 401k through Prudential. So I had a question for you about that. And, and hopefully I'm not putting you on the spot. I'm sure maybe you've had a client before. So if I've got the North Carolina state 401k, but it's a Roth version, right? And, you know, I'm not really in control. I'm limited by their products. Whenever I get out of education, can I easily roll that Roth IRA through the state over to my own personal Roth IRA through a Vanguard? Um, is that something that is generally pretty transferable to do or? Yeah, I think whenever you retire, you have access to, to make, you know, you can roll over things if, if it's appropriate to do that. Yeah. And and sometimes, honestly, it's not for teachers. You know, I, I've seen, and, and not necessarily that just focusing on the Roth, but, you know, on the other part, because, you know, sometimes if they're creating invested, you know, that's a reason to leave it there because pulling, when you pull money out, you avoid, uh, North Carolina tax, which is uh, 5%. So, you know, I think that's, um, you know, most times it's it's easy to roll it over. 
but you, it's not always appropriate to do that. So that's one thing that you need to work with your advisor and really consider, hey, is it appropriate to do that? Uh, okay. But I like your advice with the Roth. I think that um, by and large, you know, Roth IRAs are great for people, um, you know, it, unless it's a situation where they're in a high tax bracket. If you're in, if you're in a higher tax bracket, your, you know, your 401k is the, probably one of the few tax uh, breaks you get nowadays. And so I'd hate to see someone miss out on, um, you know, that tax deduction. But yeah, I, we love Roth IRAs. We try to put, you know, uh, get as much money kind of in that bucket as we can just because it provides so much flexibility um, during retirement. Because, you know, if you think about it, there's things that happen uh, in retirement. You know, Medicare premiums are based on your, your income level, right? The more income you make, the higher your Medicare premiums are. Well, if you have a big bucket in a 401k plan and you're required to pull money out of that to spend, well, that runs your, your, your income up. And so you, you want to be careful. Also, the deductibility of medical expenses, right? So, you know, there are things that as your income rises, the deductibility of stuff um, becomes increasingly more difficult because you've got to, with medical expenses, you have to surpass a certain level of your income before it's even deductible anyway. And so that, that's why I like Roths. I mean, I love the fact that they're, you know, taxes in forever. So I'm on board with that. So. <laughs> I'm I'm curious. You you get people coming there. You say you know mid fifties. You know and they're 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 looking to transition to retirement. And I'm sure you sit down with your clients and you look at their their situation, their portfolio. And do, do you ever think, man, I wish I would have gotten hold of you 20 years ago because you could be in a much better position right now if you'd have done X, Y, and Z. You know, and what would those type? What would X, Y, and Z look like? What would that be? Yeah, I, I, I do. I do think that, but I have to, you have to keep in mind that, you know, everyone's doing the best with the, with the knowledge and the cards that they've been dealt. And, you know, I kind of, I kind of think, man, I, I, I can tell you that right now we can, uh, a, some small advice, you know, fund a Roth. Here's how you do it. Go to Vanguard, open up a you know, a Roth account fund, put it in the, you know, uh, moderate growth or the growth fund, right? And so, you know, that's a great advice, uh, but there are certain things that I do feel that way, but I, I'm also feel good about, hey, let's, we can make some adjustments where we are and make some small adjustments and we've got time. You know, oftentimes we, you know, people, even, even when they come to us, you know, we're talking about 20 plus years. I mean, you're, you know, if you're, if you're uh, 55, you're going to live, if you're a couple, one of you will live until 90 probably. So, you know, I think that's kind of the time horizon that we're talking about. And you can do an awful lot of good for people when, when you have that, that runway. Do you right. have any examples? <laughs> I'm not sure how much you can say, but you know, as teachers, obviously we're, we're middle income earners, some would argue lower income earners, but do you have any clients where maybe they don't make as much income as another client, but the client who's maybe making less in income is actually doing better due to maybe just frugality in the lifestyle that they live. And then maybe you see a higher income earner and you're like, man, I wish I could put your income with this client who, you know, is saving 30 or 40% or anything like that. Does that happen? Oh gosh, all the time, you know, uh, 
a successful retirement is is not how much money you have it's how much money you spend relative to what you have and so you know people who live a modest lifestyle you know tend to they're the millionaire next door those are the people that we work with and those are the people who you know um you know they they value saving they have a, a lifestyle that they can afford they've always lived within their means they they haven't accrued debt that's uh you know uh, a lot of consumer debt especially and so those are the people who you know i can tell you right now if your listeners are in that group you, you have a bright future um just let the power of compounding happen and it will and um you know you'll be better off for it for sure but you're you hit the the nail on the head there dave i mean it's about it's it's not about how much money you have it's about your spending it's so sensitive and you can see so when we run a retirement plan for clients we'll show how sensitive it is hey you you told us that your expenses were fifty thousand dollars a year that's kind of what we're pulling out of accounts right um, let's change that to sixty thousand dollars a year well, it makes a big difference. I mean, you know, you can go from, you know, a, a probability of 100 on the Monte Carlo, right, to a probability of 50. I mean, that's a big difference. And, and so, you know, we always tell people it's the ongoing expenses that get you. It's not necessarily the one-times, you know, the one-time trip, the one-time piece of furniture. Those, you know, generally are okay, but it's the lifestyle. It's that continuous uh, cash flow that is going to be needed in retirement. That's what, that's what, you know, can, can help or hurt you. So I, I have two questions about that, actually. So uh, the first one is, is um, what kind of a, if you were just coaching someone, what kind of a budgeting style do you typically lean towards? And then when it comes to line items that people extend themselves with in their everyday life, what are some examples of that, of people, of things that people really spend too much money on um, that they could roll back pretty easily and have some savings? Oh, the things we see. Um, you know, I, I don't think about it that. Everyone has their thing. Everyone yeah. has it. You know, for some people, you know, I like to golf. I like to fly fish. You know, those are my things. I, you know, spend a certain amount of money on those things every year. You know, I, I buy new golf balls and hit them one time into the woods. So, you know, and those are the things, but that's okay. You have to do things that energize you and relax you and help you enjoy life. I, you know, and that's different for everyone. Some people like to eat organic food. Some people like, you know, new shoes. Some people like to go on to fancy uh, clubs. I, that part doesn't really matter. It's, it's the combination of everything, you know? So it's, it's, you know, Hey, it's okay to splurge on this one thing, as long as you drive a economy car, right? right. As long as you, and you ride it, ride it until it, it breaks, you know? Um, that's, that's, it's the cars. Those are the things that are probably the worst. It's cars. It's, um, and it's, and it's getting new cars, every few years right um that's that's a big one it's it can also be job changes you know sometimes you you see people and they're you know they they change jobs well there's more to think about than just the salary there's hey how long is it going to be before you're eligible for the 401k match 
you know, how long is it, you know, what type of disability coverage do you have? You had a nice disability coverage at the, at the other job. You know, it, it's, it's helping people, it's evaluating those types of issues. And I've seen that, you know, job changes can, can do that. Moving, you know, moving to a lot. You know, people say, oh, we're going to downsize. Well, they downsize into a house that's much more expensive. How about um, divorce? How much of an impact does that have? Divorce is, you know, divorce is very costly. And it's, it, it's, uh, it, it's hard. That part's hard because, you know, it's a transition that no one wants. Uh, and, you know, it is costly. And it, it's, it's a setback for a lot of different reasons. Right. Yeah. You look at North Carolina, we're a 50-50 state, right? So, you know, maybe the 401k gets split up or the IRAs, who knows what. But I had a question for you. I know Brandon's itching to ask something. But I love compound interest calculators. And as I teach a personal finance class at Jacksonville High School over here on the coast near Camp Lejeune, I love to try to engage the kids and get them excited to play around with the, the different potential rates of return. I think a lot, of, a lot of people get confused. Like, hey, if I put my money in the stock market, what's my interest rate going to be? I'm like, well, it's not an interest rate. You know, it's a rate of return. It could be minus 25% this year. Next year, it could be 12%. I generally use 8% in my calculators as a rate of return. Maybe being in your position, you don't want to over-promise and under-deliver. Do you think that 8% is generally appropriate to use as a number, or would you maybe use a number more like 6 or 7% on average? Yeah, I mean, it depends. You know, everything depends. It depends <laughs> on what a person, because, you know, let's say, let's say we target a pretty growth oriented portfolio. The client comes in and says, oh, we risk, I don't care what, I mean, it doesn't matter. I'm not going to spend the money. So then, you know, hey, it makes sense to be pretty growth oriented uh, with your portfolio. Well, then, you know, it, you know, it, it, uh, there's a decline in the market. Well, they come back, to, oh, well, I wasn't expected this. Let's, we need to make changes. Well, that's, that goes against, that kind of works against you. You kind of need to hit the nail on the head on the risk side. Um, if we're just looking at, um, you know, if we're doing a retirement plan, we're going to be very conservative um, because the last thing we want to do is say, hey, give someone the stamp of approval to retire based on a 10% return. Uh, and then, you know, that's not realistic. You know, people tend to be more conservative as they age. And, um, you know, I think, uh, you know, if you're if you're looking at a pretty growth oriented portfolio, eight percent is pretty that's pretty good. I mean, if you're if you're more conservative, you know, right now, right now, maybe five percent uh, environment. But the important thing, though, is the real return. Right. So uh, you have to assume that over time you're going to see inflation now, right now. I think we're at a. Uh, level that's going to be higher than long-term inflation rates. But, you know, to me, it's that differential. If you're getting, you know, or you get 3% real rate of return, which is 3% above the inflation rate, or are you getting 4% real rate of return or whatever that number is. But if you're, um, when you're talking to kids, you know, an 8% return, I think is, is good. I would also suggest to do it the other way. If you're paying 18% on your credit card, how much is that going to cost you? Because that's where yeah. we see problems, you know, people underestimating that number. And when you're, uh, have debt service that, you know, is 18%, um, or higher in some cases, that's just an awful big pill to swallow. And it takes away from, 
you're having your having flexibility in your life, you know, having financial flexibility, you know, having flexibility to change jobs, having flexibility to, you know, go on vacations and and, and other things. So, you know, be very careful with that. That's that's the thing that kids, you know, understand how compound interest works on the debt side because credit cards are not uh you know they're, they're not good good that's not good interest you know mortgages i can see okay that's you know you've got good interest there um that's good debt but you know credit cards are, are not good compound interest you're either going to earn it or pay it that's right. uh, yeah. <laughs> so, um, so I was going to ask you a question about, um, we, we, you know, so I have, I have two questions, but I'm going to ask one, let Dave ask one, then I'm going to ask the next one. Um, so the, the first one though is, is that we oftentimes on the show, when we have talked about the transition and the retirement, we have talked about the 4% rule on the, on the show. We've talked about, you know, that Trinity study that said, Hey, you know, you withdraw four 4%, but we haven't gone any deeper than that. Really. We haven't really talked about what that actually looks like when you play it out. Is that in your mind, a good rule of thumb and maybe uh, just talk a little bit about what that actually looks like in real life as you begin to make those withdrawals and what happens to the sum total as you're making those withdrawals, what are you hoping for? You know, just kind of what that looks like. It, it is a, it is a good rule of thumb. Um, but I'll say that it's it's a good rule of thumb, but you need to be aware that 4% withdrawal from a Roth IRA is a heck of a lot different than a 4% withdrawal from an IRA, okay? Because there's a, there's something called tax. And, you know, a 4% withdrawal from an IRA, you might net, I don't know, 3, 3%, 3.5%, 3 whatever your tax rate is, right? So, you know, that it's a good rule of thumb, but it's, um, I would put an asterisk by it because, you know, it, it, I would much rather have a Roth or a personal brokerage account when I'm in the distribution phase. Um, in the accumulation phase, the, the deduction going into the 401k uh, is great, uh, but it's, it's, it's much more challenging pulling out. You know, I'd much rather have money in a Roth than, than a, an IRA. And so, you know, and the other thing I was going to point out too here is it's a four percent, a four percent withdrawal rate across all your accounts, uh, but you also need to think about other sources of income. You know, uh, you're going to have social security. You're going to have your spouse may have social security. There may be a pension of some sort. Uh, there sometimes people have rental income and other types of income that is is coming in. And so, you know, that's one of the things where whenever you're thinking about the distribution phase. You know, you need to think about where are those sources of income coming from, and how does that kind of uh, create my pay, my monthly paycheck? How does that work? What are the logistics? Um, how, how do I? How much do I need to withhold from accounts and things like that? So the four percent is is a great rule of thumb, and it's one that we talk about a lot. Um, now there have been some recent studies that kind of say, well, you know, uh, really three and a half would be better. Uh, but of course it would, but at the end of the day, you know, I, I think, you know, sometimes 6% would be okay. It depends on how long you live, you know? And so, uh, to me, it's just, you can't just sit, you know, just start it and just forget about it. You have to reassess that each year. You have, you have to go back to the drawing board and think, okay, well, is 4% okay? Or is, can I, can I do 6%? 
you know, you know, because you know, at the end of the day, we want our clients to have a fulfilling life. I mean, that's, you know, if, if part of that is giving money away or, you know, making gifts to grandkids or, or paying the tuition to grandkids, whatever that right. might be, you know, we want to see that happen. Uh, but we're very aware of, you know, hey, let's let's we want to make sure the probabilities of your portfolio sustaining and lasting longer than you is very high. And so, you know, that's that's one thing that I think a good advisory firm can can really help. help if I could just ask a, a follow up question to that. Um, so if I'm taking four percent out of my Roth IRA every year, it, am, am I right in saying that? based on historical returns in the market, let's say I'm, I'm retired for, let's say 20 years. At the end of that 20 years, I can expect to, if I only took 4% a year, roughly I can expect to have at least the same amount at the end of that 20 years as I started with to leave to someone else. Is, is that sort of the point or? or yeah, I think the study kind of says you're, you will have more than zero. You, you, your money will last longer than you. I think but what you're saying on average, I think is probably correct because of course it depends on how it's invested, um, you know, how it's invested. But, you know, if it's, if you think about it right now, 4%, you know, I mean, you could, you could buy a treasury right now, a short-term treasury would get you basically 4%. Um, and so, you know, I, I think you'd probably want to have a little bit of equity exposure uh, for right. sure, because I can tell you interest rates might uh, not be where they are forever. Uh, but, and I think equities would, stocks would, would outperform over the long term. But yeah, I think 4% would get you um, to the end of your life and uh, you probably maintain your principal. On, so on do that, you think, I've got a, a two-part question here. Do you think that being teachers, you know, if we have a pension, you know, a defined benefit plan, and let's say my pension is going to pay me twenty five hundred or three thousand a month, guaranteed the rest of my life, do you think that it's safe to say that teachers might be able to be more aggressive with equities when it comes to their investments because we do have that stable piece of income? That's question number one, and then part two to that is kind of just the mechanics of the four percent rule. So. Let's say that uh, I've got $500,000 in a Roth IRA. I'm 62 years old and I, and I now want to start the, the 4% rule. 4% of 500,000 would be $20,000 in a year. Would I just take out the $20,000 like January 1 and put that in like say a high yield savings account, divide 20,000 by 12 and then pay myself that way? Or would I actually dip into the Roth IRA every month and take it directly from there. I'm sure there's probably no wrong answer there, but how do most people do it? And what about the uh, more aggressive side of being a teacher? Cause we do have the pension. Yeah. Okay. The, uh, the, um, all right. I'll, I'll kind of uh, address the, the pension question first. And I'll, I'll agree there because if you think about it, the pension is kind of like a giant bond that's paying you an interest rate. And so if you think about it in terms of asset allocation or stock versus bond mix, uh, some people will say, hey, I've got a giant bond. I can be more growth oriented on the rest of my investments. That's, uh, that's kind of the theory. In practice, though, I, what I've found over the years is that, you know, it, people don't really think about it that way. They think about the portfolio is the portfolio and the pension is an in, in source of income. 
And um, and so, you know, I always bring that up. Hey, well, you know, you've got a, you can be more growth-oriented if you like, uh, but oftentimes, you know, it's the risk profile as such and their tolerance and their ability to, uh, you know, and there really is preference too. You know, they, they don't like to see the account values fluctuate as much. So that's what I would say about the, uh, the pension. And the, the other one, the 4% mechanics, uh, what it, it, ask that one again now. Yeah, I was just asking, you know, if I had 500,000 in a Roth IRA, 4% of 500,000 is 20,000. Would I take out the 20,000 like January 1st and then I spread that out and pay myself maybe out of a savings account every month? Or do you actually every month dip into the Roth IRA? How does that work? Everyone does it a little bit differently. I, I think that most people's budgets kind of monthly based on a monthly type of um, game plan. And so I think most people just will pull monthly. Now, the logistics of that are, can be challenging, though, because, you know, in theory, you don't really want to pull money from um, an investment that has declined, for example, right? You kind of want to have a little bucket of liquidity. Um, and that can come into play at times, but there, there, you know, there are ways to to get around that a little bit. You can you can invest in a mutual fund that is uh, kind of a balanced fund and just pull monthly out of that. Um, some people will do it quarterly or or even yearly. I, I think that you know if you if you think about how the markets perform, I mean, seventy five percent of the time markets are moving upwards, and so the monthly is pulling monthly works, but it's kind of all dependent on the person and their specific preferences and what else is going on in their life. Right, right. I wanted to go, I wanted to bounce back to the insurance question. Um, you know, you've, we've, we've talked a little bit about, you know, term versus whole. And, um, you know, of course, you know, one of the arguments for, you know, term and life insurance, among other things, is because as you get older, you know, you don't need insurance as much. And, um, you know, I think that's for some middle income earners, that's a foreign concept, you know, because something's got to happen in order for me to not need that term, that insurance anymore. You know, in other words, I, I, my assets should be growing something else. So uh, but then but then I may want to replace that in my older years with another kind of insurance. So I thought you might just want to touch on that just a little bit. Yeah. So that's a great point. You know, so as a person ages. Right. Their uh, certain things change, right? Their debt load declines as they they're paying their mortgage down. Their children uh, hopefully at some point leave the nest, and so they're no longer dependents. Um, and you know, they're the, they've been saving to their retirement accounts and accumulating funds, and so their asset base is growing. So really, if you look at the need for life insurance, that kind of for most people diminishes with time. Now, uh, what we found and what I believe to be uh, true, and we've kind of seen this, is over time, though, once once the, the period uh, for life insurance kind of uh, ends, um, the need for long-term care insurance kind of begins, because that's your biggest risk. And if you think about long, the cost of a stay in a skilled nursing facility, anyone who's a listener who has had that happen in their family, they understand how costly it is. And it's compounded by certain other things, too. If you think about it, it's dependent on the distribution of your asset base, right? So is your, do you have all of your money in your 401k? Well, if you do, 
it's going to be it's going to take an awful you can have to pull money a lot of money out of your 401k to pay for skilled nursing and it's going to be taxable to you you know it's a big it's a big uh that's a big pull with long-term care insurance you know you've got a policy that will pay you um when you um you know, it's based on activities of daily living for people who are listening and understand that. It's if once you can no longer do two of the seven activities of daily living, you qualify for uh, your long-term care policy to pay pay you as long as you've met the deductible and that kind of thing. The benefit from a long-term care insurance policy is, is tax-free. So as long as the premiums were paid with after-tax dollars. So, you know, that's that's a big one for people you know long-term care insurance uh, that becomes a big um possible expense now what we'll do is i mean again i'm not a huge fan of insurance it serves a role and we want to talk about that and explore that and make sure that clients are, are secure and safe but for some people they may not need long-term care insurance they may have the ability to self-insure their asset base is such um, the distribution of their asset base is such where they can they can afford to pay that out of pocket. Now, what we've seen though, and what we uh, express to people, are there are other reasons um, to get long-term care insurance besides just the pure financial reason. You you can afford to self-insure, but maybe you don't want to depend on your spouse or your children to take care of you. Um, you know, maybe and you you would be uh, reluctant to pay for pay for that out of pocket. You know, I think that's we have we've seen that where people have enough money to pay for their care, but because they're having to write a check, they they don't seek the help that they desperately need. It's a psychological and, and thing, yeah, yeah, that's hard to watch. So, uh, you know, there's 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 both financial and non financial reasons uh, for long term care insurance, and uh, it's something that everyone should at least explore. That's one of my biggest fears, I think, is, you know, I've had both of my grandmothers, um, the last five, six years of their life, they ended up in an assisted living. And gosh, you know, I've, depending on, you know, your location, we're in North Carolina, which generally is a lower cost of living, of course, compared to other areas. But I've heard of facilities that are, you know, five, $6,000 a month. You know, if you've got $500,000 in and assets as you hit retirement and you're spending, you know, 60, $70,000 a year in some sort of a facility and you're in that facility for five years, that's a whole lot of your nest egg that, you know, isn't going to go on to your loved ones. How much are these facilities these days, at least for maybe the clients that you deal with, if you know, off the top of your head yeah. and how yeah. much of an impact does that make where somebody works and saves and invests their whole life and then it's all gone. And here's here's the scary thing, guys. That you know, oftentimes it's, it's the man who who needs you know a man needs care and passes away, um, and there's this huge expense that's come out. Well, the wife lives longer, you know. So how do you protect a couple's nest egg uh, from that devast devastating impact of a skilled nursing? Uh, need and, and you know the cost in North Carolina the average co average cost is about two two hundred and sixty dollars a day. Uh, I think that's about seventy eight hundred dollars a month. Uh, it's not cheap. And now every facility is different, right? And you can have the you know it's like anything else. You can have the Toyota Camry or the BMW. 
Um, and so, you know, depending on, and, and really it's depending on where you live and the type of facility and the type of care you need as to what the cost is, but it can, it can pose some real problems for uh, families in that situation. Not, you know, dementia and Alzheimer's, that, that's just uh, the worst because, you know, there's, uh, you know, my, my business partner's grandmother has, um, you know, uh, memory care issues and she's, she's in her late mid mid nineties. And so, you know, she is, you know, it's, it's kind of, you're, you're going through your money and thankfully if you've got a pension that helps uh, for sure. But a lot of people, you know, maybe they, they don't even have a pension. So, you know, nowadays we see, we see probably 10% of the people have pension. So it's just not uh, very common, but long-term care insurance is something you should scrutinize. Now, again, I wouldn't, I'm, I'm a fan of the Camry versus the Beamer, you know, and um, I, I don't want people to be overinsured, but by the same token, you know, it's, it's a, a small, it, it's a known cost to cover a um, potentially catastrophic cost. You know, it, it's, you've got a known fixed cost. Well, it's not really fixed even because long-term care insurance premiums can rise with time and they do. Um, but it's, it's, Compared to the cost of care, it's it's a small cost. That's what I was going to ask next. Obviously, there's lots of different policies and whatnot. Like at what age? And again, this isn't one size fits all. But for somebody who's really interested and they want that, at what age would long term care be a good idea to maybe you know sign up for? And if if a facility in North Carolina is going to cost me seventy eight hundred dollars a month, let's say from eighty five to ninety. Um, do I start long-term care insurance at 60 and, and how much would that be per month, uh, you know, give or take on average? Um, so like everything else, it depends, right? Um, you know, the, the cost is, you know, when, when do you start looking? So what we do, and I kind of say it exactly this way to my clients, we want to rip the Band-Aid off at age 55. So we want clients to know, we want to go and get quotes talk about, educate them on all the different stipulations. How, what's the benefit period? What's the elimination period? What are riders that you might want to consider? Um, we want to educate people about that at around 55. Now, um, they may not, it may take them a couple of years to come around to say, okay, well, we're, we're going to get coverage now. And the premiums will uh, invariably go up. Um, but we, we like to see people, you know, to me, it needs to be in place by, 60, 62, because the premiums really start to escalate, um, you know, and, and, you know, but there are things that you can do. So there are policy features that you can tinker with that can make the cost more manageable. Now, if you're working with an insurance agent and that's all they do, they're going to lead with, you know, the Beamer. And then you're going to say, oh my God, I had no idea it costs that much. They'll say, okay, well, look, instead of a lifetime benefit, let's do a, 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 you know, 10-year benefit, and it's still expensive. Well, let's back it on down to a two-year benefit. Now, the average stay is two and a half years in a facility. Um, you know, let's back it down. We can self-insure some, but let's just kind of hedge our hedge it a little bit. Let's get a, a policy with a, each husband and wife has a two-year benefit each. And, you know, there's also something called shared care rider, so you can kind of uh, play off of each other. In other words, if if the one spouse has, is in a facility for two years and they've used up all the benefit of their policy, they can pull from the other 
uh, spouse's policy as well, just to kind of preserve that asset base a little bit longer. And so, you know, there are things that you can do to tinker with the cost. And uh, on average, you know, I would say, gosh, what we're seeing now, it's really gone up the last 10 years. It's really, it's really gone up. I would say you can get a pretty good policy if you're 55 to 60, probably for maybe $4,000, $4,500 a year, husband and wife. It ain't cheap, that's for wow. sure. I mean, it's not cheap. And you can back it on. I mean, you can say, okay, well, instead of a, you know, a $200 a day benefit, let's back it down to $150 a day. It's not going to cover everything, but it'll cover, it'll provide some good coverage. And so, and you're just taking, you're hedging. That's what you're doing. You're right. Yourself a little bit. And so, you know, that's the thing that I think it's important when you're, when you're working with an insurance professional who kind of is working in your best interest, you know, you can tinker it and customize the policy to your own needs. The other thing that's important too is working with a non-captive agent. So what that means is, you know, if you have a, uh, an agent, you know, that works for a, a one specific company in Northwestern Mutual, they reckon they are kind of working with one long-term care carrier, not always, but oftentimes. So what, what we like to, what we like to do is work with an agent that can work with a, a variety of, of different types of carriers, you know, and because what happens is the underwriting standards are different. So if Prudential says, oh gosh, you've got, you know, high cholesterol, we're, we're really, we don't like that. You know, we're going to really raise your premiums. Well, Transamerica may not care about that. You know, they've got other things that they are more focused on. So the underwriting standards are a little bit different and having that non-captive agent can help you save money on those, on those specific items. So that's, you know, that's one way that advisors, uh, as they're helping you can, um, you know, save you money. It's, 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 um, you know, really, I've seen that happen a lot. And so, you know, I had a client one time that we, he, he was going for long-term care insurance and, um, they found that he had some kind of a hole in his heart. You have to go through, you have to go through like some medical tests and that kind of thing. And they found out that he had, so he couldn't get coverage. But what he did was he um, waited a couple of years and then went back and got coverage fine. I mean, sometimes you can repair those, you know, if something small is wrong. This, I mean, a hole in the heart sounds pretty big to me, but, you know, and also insurance companies, especially long-term care, you know, they really don't care that much if, if you die. Uh, it's kind of sick to say, but, you know, they really care about the people who are have memory issues, who have diabetes, who have other things that where you kind of hang around for a long time and need the skilled nursing. If you're just going to get knocked off um, by a heart attack or something, that, that's less of a concern to long-term care carriers. So and that, is, that knowledge, I think, is, is helpful when you're, when you're uh, working with an insurance person. Chib, you are a wealth of knowledge, my friend. Um, that was a wealth of knowledge, just a lot of th- a lot of good stuff there. I wanted to give you an opportunity to just kind of specifically for middle income earners, teachers are middle income earners. We have a lot of middle income earners that listen to the show. Any specific financial advice or principles that you might share with them? You've already you've you've hit on be frugal. And be fearless, I think. I think we've done, you know, those are two of the kind of imperatives that we talk about. You know, if you want to be financially successful, you've got to 
you got to be frugal. You got to be fearless. Um, but maybe some other things that I don't know how specific you want to be, but just some other things that middle income earners could do to help them win with money. Oh, boy, that's a good question. I mean, I think you need to be your own advocate. You need you need to listen to podcasts. You need to educate yourself a little bit. I mean, knowledge goes a long way. I mean, even if it's just the very, very basic, I mean, you know, there's so many different facets. I mean, you know, it, it, there's, there's estate, there's insurance, there's investments. You know, you have to just be a little bit aware. And I think it's hard because a lot of people just, it's not interesting at all to them. I find that hard to believe, honestly, because I, I mean, like you guys, I just, I love this stuff and it's fascinating to me and I'm curious. And, uh, but I, I think you, you kind of need to recognize for middle income earners, understand that every little bit helps. If you're contributing to your Roth and it's, you can afford $50 a month, you think, oh, that's not enough. I'm not even going to start that. Don't create that hurdle for yourself. $50 is fine. You know, go with it $50 a month and try to increase it over time. And um, you'll you'll be surprised with how far you get. And uh, and think about too, like, hey, do I, do I really need the Starbucks? I mean, I love my uh, Starbucks from time to time, but that's not a daily thing. But can we just, are there areas where I can, uh, you know, reallocate to my working capital? Put, a, put your focus on working capital, that money that's working for you, um, because that will come in handy in, in the long term. Um, and, and then also just, you know, recognize that there are going to be setbacks. You're going to have things that happen in your lifetime, you know, things with your children, medical issues, uh, setback with your job, the markets, trend, transitions of all sorts. You're going to have those in your life and you need to have flexibility and you need to, um, you know, position yourself so that, okay, I'm not, I can go for a few months without an income. You know, I, I can, uh, it might not be great, but I've got enough set aside for a few months at least, and I'm, I'm okay. So make sure you have that emergency fund and, and you know, then just, you know, make, let the power of compounding do its, do its magic and it will work. And uh, you guys have, you know, pounded that home on other uh, episodes I've listened to. And so, you know, I, I applaud you guys for, for the information that you, you're providing to your listeners and uh, I, I think is very sound advice. Chip, we really appreciate it, man. Uh, we we got to wrap it up, but I feel like we could probably talk for another hour easily. Um, it's fun. It, it's it is fun. You guys ask wonderful questions and you make me seem like I'm, you know, super smart and um, I appreciate that. But, you know, we're, we're all learning it's, and things change. And so, you just have to, you know, recognize that. And uh, and I appreciate you, the kind words, both of you guys. And I, I've yeah, really we've had other people say that before. Our loved ones say that whenever you hang out with Brandon and I, it makes them feel a lot smarter. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I've, I've been told that once or twice. <laughs> Chip, we greatly appreciate it. Um, I don't know if you want to do this, if you're comfortable, but do you want to mention the name of your firm in case we have any listeners that are teachers, maybe in the Raleigh area that would like to reach out or... Yeah, I mean, you can, you guys can go to our uh, website. My name of my company is Beacon Financial Strategies. And, um, you know, you can go to our website, check us out, um, give us a call, listen to a podcast, you know, check out. We, we do an awful lot of writing articles. We, uh, we just did a webinar for our clients this week that we posted on the website just talking about market things. 
And uh, a lot of people are, are a little worried, um, anxious about that. So we did a webinar for them there. So yeah, love to hear from you guys. If, if anyone um, cares to say hello, I would love that. We greatly appreciate you joining us, Chip. And thank you to the listeners again for joining us on this week's version of the Financially Independent Teachers podcast. We hope you join us for next week. And remember that someone is sitting in the shade today because they planted a tree a long time ago. Take care, everybody.